Well, with faith is the victory, and my faith looks up to thee ringing in our ears. Let's turn to a great faith chapter, Hebrews 11, verses 4 through 6. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Now, last week I began my exposition of Hebrews 11 by asking, why is this chapter here and what difference does it make in our lives? And I answered by directing your attention to verse 34 of chapter 10, six verses earlier than this chapter. And so I want to start there again. My answer was this. Chapter 11 exists. Indeed, I would argue the whole book of Hebrews exists in order to produce the kind of people described in verse 34 of chapter 10, namely, people who rejoice over the confiscation of their property. You see that? They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Here's a people whose values have been so revolutionized that they are free from bondage to the love of things. They are free from the kind of values that define most American success. As you'll see it expressed on the advertisements between the Bulls and the Jazz game. Or any other advertising for that matter. The values that inform most of American culture are obviously not informing these people because they are rejoicing that their property has been plundered. They're very strange people. And the secret of their uniqueness is given at the end of the verse where it says, they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. So their radical love that enabled them to go to prison and visit the other prisoners and go public as Christians and risk the plundering of their property... That love is rooted in confidence that they got something better than houses and lands and furniture. And now, in chapter 11, verse 1, that confidence is called faith. Now, faith is that assurance of things hoped for. So let's just stop there and say very clearly and very simply, faith is the key to being free 
from the love of things that make you a self-centered person striving for security instead of taking the risks of love. Faith is the key, but faith understood in a very particular sense, namely a future-oriented faith. Do you see that? Let's read it again. Verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's the better and abiding possession of verse 34. And faith is the conviction of things not seen. And then comes this litany of heroes. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and on. That's what we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. So if you ask me, why is chapter 11 here? I answer, chapter 11 is here to illustrate the nature of faith at the outset and then people of faith who you can imitate and be encouraged by. Now, to test whether we're on the right track with the author of this book, turn back with me to chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11 and 12 go like this. We desire each one of you to show the same diligence as to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. There's faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Here's the full assurance of hope. This is faith he's talking about. Strive and be diligent to have strong, future-oriented faith in the goodness of God. Why? That you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see the function of heroes? There are people to imitate. And so you have it already in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And now we get it again in chapter 11. Now, if you ask... Well, is it only Old Testament saints you should imitate? Can you imitate anybody else? Should anybody else function for us as heroes? The answer is given in chapter 13, verse 7. And it brings it right up to date. Chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember those who led you. Remember your leaders. Remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you. In other words, contemporaries, not just Old Testament people are dead and gone. Those who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So this is a principle in the book of Hebrews. The point is this. Bethlehem people have some heroes. Know some missionary biography. Know some good, solid, strong, God-centered Christian businessmen that you can model your life after. Know some good, strong, deeply rooted Christian women who've poured out their lives for home and community and church and left behind an incredibly godly heritage. Know some of those and look at their lives and be encouraged and inspired by them and imitate their faith. That's why chapter 11 is here. It's a springboard into 
I don't want to say hero worship here. We're not talking about hero worship. We're talking about heroes who help you worship the real thing because they worship the real thing. Heroes who deflect attention off themselves onto God so that when you look at them, you see more of God and your faith in God is strengthened. I groan. Don't you groan that there are so few in America today? Where are our political statesmen heroes who don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't embezzle? Where are they? Where are our military heroes? Where are our evangelists? Well, there are a few. Billy Graham has kept the faith and his nose clean and there's a hero for us. But don't you groan for kids growing up today and all they get in the media is slop about our leaders, almost. I mean, I don't want to overstate it. But good night, it's like an avalanche of suspicion and doubt so that the very concept of having heroes is almost impossible today. And the heroes that are put forward, many of them in the sport world, are jerks. Immoral, arrogant, proud. And they're put forward for kids to be like. Well, I believe in heroes. And I've got some. I was in Charlotte Friday. And uh, my dad drove up from Greenville, South Carolina and brought nine people with him to hear me preach. My dad hasn't heard me preach for 20 years. I don't think. I'm forgetting something. And uh, I tried to introduce him and I just broke down. I felt like an absolute idiot. 3,000 people watching me blubber into the microphone about my, my father. But that was a moving moment for me. To have my dad sitting there and to hold up Desiring God and say, I dedicated this book to the holiest and happiest man I know. Stand up, Daddy. I got heroes. There's one of them. Most of my heroes are dead. But a few living ones are still around. Get some. If you have to go outside this century, go. If you have to go to the Bible, go. Let me say another word about why chapter 11 is here. Look at verses 35 and 36 of chapter 10. These are all leading into chapter 11, explaining why it's coming. It says, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Notice the threefold pattern. Don't throw away your confidence. Do the will of God by that confidence and receive what is promised. Hope, obedience, inheritance. Hope, obedience, inheritance is the pattern. Now what I want to stress as to why you should give heed to chapter 11 this morning is something else that grew out of Charlotte. God touched me in some special ways there. And it's very simply those words in verse 36. You have need of endurance, Bethlehem. You have need of endurance, Bethlehem. At a lunch in Charlotte on Friday, 
I got to sit with uh, David Wells, who's going to be the speaker at our pastors' conference next February. Teaches at Gordon Conwell. He's written several very, very important books, like No Place for Truth and uh, God in the Wasteland. And we got into a conversation about evangelicalism and the state of the church today and our common concerns. And he believes, and I think he's right, that while on the surface evangelicalism looks like it's getting stronger and stronger and there are many big flourishing ministries around, he believes it's being gutted and becoming weaker and weaker because evangelicalism increasingly defines itself in terms of method and relationships, not truth and doctrine. You ask yourself, TV ministries, prayer ministries, evangelistic ministries, denominations, how often do you hear the trumpet blast of distinctive biblical views of God as the rallying cry for why we exist? Seldom do you hear it anymore. And he thinks that what's happening is a gutting of evangelicalism on the inside while it's flourishing with numbers and, and all kinds of worship trumpeting on the outside. You know it's very easy to grow a church without God. You know that, don't you? All you need is classy music and classy communication and a few relevant points about your pain and you got a church. And so many, many ministries flourish with no kingdom work happening. But here's the sentence that he said that went for you and me. He said, John, oh, how vulnerable and how perilous is the life of faith. Now, here's what he meant. We were thinking in terms of schools, denominations, churches, families, and people. And he said, oh, how perilous and how vulnerable is the life of faith. People today so take for granted the fact that if a church is faithful to God today, it will be faithful to God tomorrow. And it won't necessarily. Which is why I just zero in on these words from verse 36. You have need of endurance. If our institutions do not have leaders that are vigilant over the doctrine of their life, if our denominations and our local churches do not have leaders who are vigilant over faith and life and holiness, if dads in this church aren't vigilant over the family devotional life and prayer life. You know what will happen? This happens, folks. Today, you're reading the Bible. You're praying at meals. The husband and wife may kneel together before they go to bed at night and pray. And you begin to take it for granted. There's no vigilance applied, no discipline The urgency of the immediate moves in and you wake up in six months and you haven't done it. You just haven't been doing it. I mean, that happens. That happens in families. That happens in individual devotional life. 
That happens in churches. Churches are prayerful. They have prayer meetings. And the people are praying. And then they get on a topic and they get on a cause. And and in two years, they wake up and nobody's praying. It happens. Which is why the book of Hebrews is in the Bible. Those of you who've been around for a year know the theme of this book. Don't coast. Don't coast in your life. Don't coast in your family. Let's not coast as a church. Let's not coast as an institution. Bethel or the Baptist General Conference. Everything falls to the law of entropy. It just gets weaker and weaker and weaker where there isn't energy moving in the opposite direction. And that's a call for leadership at home. It's a call for leadership in the church. It's a call for leadership in our schools. So I just rivet your attention on verse 36 there. You have need of endurance. Everything decays, folks. Everything decays unless you lay hold on it and are vigilant to pursue it and fight the fight of faith every day and get yourself some heroes and read your Bibles and plead with Almighty God that He would incline our hearts. Did you read 1 Kings 8 this week on your Bible reading plan through the year? You got Solomon praying that great dedicatory prayer. And when he's near the end, he says, Oh God, incline the hearts of your people that they may always keep your testimonies. When I read that this week, I put my Bible down and I said, Oh God, every day I pray, incline my heart that I may keep your testimony. Where do adulterous pastors come from? They come from ordinary pastors who stopped being vigilant. That's all. Where do liberals come from in educational institutions? They come from conservatives who stopped being vigilant over their biblical commitments and were no longer truth-driven but relationship-driven. These things happen. Everything decays. That's why Hebrews is in the Bible. That's why chapter 11 is in the Bible. I stood there. I poured out my heart to those people. Half of them probably were pastors there. And uh, three times I got to speak. I poured out my heart to them on the supremacy of God in preaching, prayer, and missions. And I talked to pastors... One of them just, he walked right up on the stage as soon as he was done. Tears running down his face. He said, I have absolutely no joy at all in the ministry. And I don't think I'll survive another month. Would you pray for me? There are so many leaders ready to throw in the towel, folks. Just ready to give it up. Because they've lost their joy. He said, I am so mad at my people. I stand in the pulpit and all I feel is anger because they don't get it. And what he meant was, there's just a lot of carnality out there. There's little dynamic in worship. There's hardly anybody witnessing. People don't pray. And he's pouring out his heart. 
and now he's become bitter. And unless he gets fixed, they'll never get fixed. So I've, uh, I've felt a lot pouring into this message from recent days. And I want you to be with me in uh, prayer. I want you to be with me in worship. I want you to be with me in witness, in mission, in laying down our lives for the city and in loving each other and in stoking our engines and being real and being vigilant and not coasting or taking anything for granted at this church. Nothing. Nothing for granted. How many of you raised kids and they were good kids and they're gone? And it could happen to mine. No guarantees. Well, let's jump into chapter 11 and these, these few verses that I read at the beginning. To connect with last Sunday, these verses 4 through 6, you may remember that I did not say anything about verse 2 last Sunday. Even though that was the text. I skipped it. That was intentional because it is the link with today's text. Now let's read it. Start with verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, here's verse 2, by it, by faith, men of old gained approval. So he's, he's referring now to these heroes that are coming. They gained approval with God by faith. Let's, let's paraphrase these two verses so the meaning comes out clear. Faith has two parts, he says. It means being sure of God's promises, verse 1, and it means being sure that God, the invisible God, exists and that His creative hand is involved in the world. And then he says in verse 2, and this kind of faith, assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen, is being played out in the lives of old Old Testament saints. That's how they got their approval. I don't think, even though the word for is at the beginning, unless you're reading the NIV or some other paraphrase, the the word for is at the beginning of verse 2. I don't think, however, it is an argument to say, I know that faith is what it says in verse 1 because that's the way men were approved in the Old Testament. I think, rather, he's saying... We see that faith is this way because we see it played out in the lives of Old Testament saints. Now, I'll tell you why that's important in a few minutes. That he's not arguing that faith is this way by reading it off of Old Testament saints' lives, but that he believes that it is rooted in something else, and then he sees it played out in Old Testament saints' lives. Let's take two of these saints that are mentioned, Abel and Enoch. Abel, you remember, is the second son of Adam. Enoch is the seventh generation listed there in the book of of Genesis chapter 5. Let's read verse 4. First example. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. So he did it by faith. Through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Now that word, obtained the testimony that he was righteous, is the same word as used in verse 2. He gained approval. So he's illustrating the principle of verse 2 now in the case of Abel. That he was righteous. God testifying, there's that word again, about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So what he's focusing on in this verse is that God approved Abel's 
sacrifice because it was from faith. That's the point. That's all we need to see. He gave this animal because he was a man of faith. So what matters is not just what you do, but why you do it, where it's coming from, what kind of a heart is in here. When you do right things for wrong, from a wrong heart, God is not pleased. But if you do right things from a right heart, that is a heart of faith, it says he gained approval, was counted as righteous because of that faith. Now look at Enoch, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness. That's the same word as found in verse 2. He was approved. He obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. The writer gets that from two places in the Old Testament, verse 22 and verse 24 of Genesis 5, where it says, Enoch walked with God. So he pleased God, he walked with God. So Abel pleased God by giving the right sacrifice by faith. And Enoch pleased God because he was walking with God and was granted the blessing of being translated into heaven by faith. Now, here's a problem. And this writer knows the problem. This problem does not take him off guard. He created the problem. The problem is, in none of those Old Testament passages is faith referred to. Neither the text on Abel nor the text on Enoch. So this writer did not read the story of Abel and say, oh, look, it says he did this by faith, so I'll use him as as an example of faith. And then he got down a few verses later in chapter 5 and he read the story of Enoch and he said, oh, look, it says by faith Enoch was translated. It doesn't say that. Faith is not mentioned in the Old Testament in relation to Abel or Enoch. Now, this is why I said it's important to realize that he's not arguing for the nature of faith. He's seeing it played out in the lives of these men, and he's, he's got a conviction about what faith is before he gets to that Old Testament text. And he sees that as an illustration of faith. Now, I'll just show you this. You can see this real plainly. I didn't make this up. Verse 6. Get the flow of verse 5 again. At the end of verse 5 it says, Enoch obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. That's plain from the text because he walked with God. And he was translated by God. Didn't have to see death. Now comes the explanation of where faith gets involved. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you see the reasoning? In the first service, we had a lot of kids. And I got the kids' attention at this point. And I said, now, I think this is eight-year-old stuff here. And I said, if any of you six- or seven-year-olds get it, tell me about it, because I'd like to know where you start getting this stuff. I personally think Talitha's already working on this. She's 19 months. But let me explain what I mean. This is basic human reasoning here. 
And I'm pausing to emphasize the obviousness of this because I get a lot of rumors that people think logic or reasoning or thinking is somehow an unspiritual thing that dampens the fervor of faith and comes from Greeks anyway, so why would you want to do it? Aristotle. Well, here's my opinion. Very strong opinion. <laughs> it didn't come from Aristotle. It came from God. And it's written all over the Bible. And here's what I mean. Without faith... I'm going to use the big words in this service. Premise number one. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Premise number two. Enoch pleased God. Conclusion. I, I asked the kids this question. They shouted it. They got it. I said, conclusion. Therefore, Enoch has... You got it too, see? That... You, you can put a nasty name on that and call it Aristotelian instead of Hebraic if you want to. That's written on the face of reality. And it's all over the Bible. That kind of reasoning did not come from the Greeks. It came from God. It's the way we're wired. And it's all over the Bible. And I, I plead with you parents... Build it into your kids. It's already there. Draw it out. Dedicate it to Jesus. Show them the Bible. Show them how the Bible reasons. Oh, how I wish somebody, when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, had told me that the Bible reasons instead of just asserting. I was 22 when I found that out in 1968. And it blew me apart. I was never the same again when I discovered that the Bible weaves arguments together with propositions that are connected with conjunctions building on one another so that one relates to another and it forms a whole that gives contours to my God. I treated the Bible like a string of pearls up till that time. Here's a verse pearl, there's a verse pearl, and there's a verse pearl. And you put them around your neck and you do like the rosary. And then I entered hermeneutics with Dan Fuller. And I said, you mean you should pay attention to because and therefore and in order that and although the links between the pearls and they're really not just pearls, they are foundational building blocks of glory. You think this matters to me? <laughs> and when I see seminaries not doing this, we're going to do it at Bethlehem. Build it into your kids. If you don't see these things in the Bible, how will you understand the connection between verse 5 and 6? That's all we're trying to do here is God's Word is before us. Verse 5 says, Enoch pleased God. 
it began the verse by saying, faith is how he was translated. Faith isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. So how did he arrive at the conclusion that he did it by faith? He reasons. Namely, he pleased God. You can't please God without faith. Conclusion, he must have done it by faith. That's biblical and that's crucial to see over and over again in the Bible. It's crucial. Now here is what we have not yet answered. Where do you get premise number one? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Where'd that come from? Just pick that out of the air. I've already said he didn't find it in Genesis 4 and 5. The word faith isn't even referred to in relation to Abel and Enoch. Where'd he get it? He gives the answer in the next half of verse 6. It's a surprising answer. you got to think about it. In order to get it. First part says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And then he says, for, because, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. took me about three hours to figure this out. At least to get far enough so I could preach with any confidence. How is this an argument? Without faith, you can't please God because faith is an embracing of the existence of God and faith is an embracing of the rewardingness of God. Period. End of argument. Here's here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, my bottom line, my foundational argument is the nature of God. And faith is defined not by any artificial jumping around or who I am, by what God's nature demands. That's how you arrive at what faith is. And then he picks two, and I'm tempted to say, the two main things about God. One, God is the absolute being of God. He never came into being. He's never been changing or growing or progressing or developing I am who I am, says the Lord. And faith, therefore, must come to God embracing that. If faith doesn't embrace and say yes to that, it isn't pleasing to God. What pleases God, I'm discerning now in this verse, is human responses that display who God really is. And if faith comes and says, you are, I see your fingerprints all over the world. I see it in the gospel and I embrace you as the God who simply, absolutely, unchangeably is. 
God smiles and says, I like that. I'm pleased with that because that's who I am. And then the other thing he picks out of all the things he might say is faith believes that God is a rewarder. And as I thought about that, I thought, maybe what he means is this. Not only does God exist absolutely, but because he came in, didn't come into being, but has always been absolutely, he is totally self-sufficient. And therefore totally independent of us creatures. And therefore utterly free from needing us. Acts 17.25 God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, but he himself gives, gives, rewards all men with life and breath and everything. So here's what I think this verse is saying. God is and God is explosively, overflowingly, rewardingly self-sufficient. And God is pleased by responses of human beings that display these two things. And what is that, he says, is faith. Faith comes to him as a God who is and embraces and believes that. And faith comes to a God who is full and overflowing and is satisfied with that. And those two things define faith. The point of this text is God defines faith. The being of God defines faith. And then he comes with that profound God-inspired conviction to the Old Testament text and he reads about Abel. And he sees that God is pleased with Abel. And he reads about Enoch and he sees that God is pleased with Enoch. And he theologizes, he thinks, and he says, if this book is inspired by God, which it is, and if this book says that he is pleased with these sinful human beings, then something in them must be pleasing to God. And yes, it is that which displays his being, and his bounty, his reality and his reward, his existence and his excellence. It's faith. These men had faith. That's what faith is by definition. Now let me close by pointing out one more thing. Notice the connection between verse 1 and verse 6. My wife came in last night late, I was just struggling with this text so much. You know, some texts yield and some texts kick. And this was kicking. And I was sitting there at the computer. I said, would you pray for me? I'm really stuck and it's late and I'm tired. And she stood behind me with her hand on my shoulder. And she said, well, what's the problem? Maybe I can help. (laughs) Which happens more often than you know. And she looked at this thing, and verses 1 to 6 were up on the screen. And she read them, and I tried to explain to her where I was hung. And she said, looks like one of those sandwiches to me. I said, that is really sharp. (laughs) And it is. 
verse 1 and verse 6 are the nutritional bread. Look at them. See if you don't agree. Verse 1 says faith has two components. It is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen. And verse 6 says faith has two components. It is coming to God with the confidence that he is, though he's unseen, and it is coming to God with the assurance that he rewards. He's full of hope. And those two correspond to each other. The conviction of things not seen in verse 1 corresponds to God, the invisible exists in verse 6. And the assurance of things hoped for in verse 1 corresponds to God, the rewarder, in verse 6. Which all says to me that the bottom line here is God and who He is. He is and He is full and overflowing. He doesn't need you and therefore He can be there for you when you're desperate and empty. So I simply plead with you again the way I began pleading. We have need of endurance today. Soul endurance, family endurance, church endurance, denominational endurance, institutional endurance, and vigilance over the perilous, vulnerable life of faith. Romans, I mean Hebrews 11 is written to help us strengthen our hand in this persevering endurance. And today, the main thing we've seen is the bottom of faith is God. And if you want your faith to be strong, not only get yourself some heroes from the Old Testament and from contemporaries, get yourself some heroes to imitate, but get a vision of God. Know your God. That's my closing exhortation today. Know your God. If faith is written right off of God, if faith gets its nature from God, if faith derives its vitality and its persevering strength from God, know God, know God, know God. Devote yourself to getting to know this great God. If you take a walk this afternoon, which you ought to do, rather than watching television, you will feel much better. Look up at this sunshine and quote to yourself the Word of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And then pray the prayer of Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things both from the book of the law and the book of nature. And maybe God will shine in upon you and reveal the glory of the Lord so that your faith will conform to who God is. And we will be preserved as people, as families, as churches, as denominations, as institutions, and who knows, maybe as a nation. Let's pray. Father, I plead with you that you would open our eyes to see you in your word and to see you in your world And would you be so merciful as to build our faith and strengthen our hands in the life of piety and devotion and radical obedience whereby we are freed 
from the love of things and enabled to take risks this afternoon to talk to a neighbor about Jesus and tomorrow morning to give one of those Bethlehem postcards to somebody at break time at work and to accept the call to go overseas or to live in a hard place. Whatever the risky thing is you've got appointed for us this week, open our eyes to see that we have a better possession and an abiding one and that you are an unshakably existing rewarder for all who seek you. Bless us in this way, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.